Hi, and welcome to Philip Capital's Learning with Lim. This is podcast episode five. So I'm talking to Dr. Sender in this podcast. And talking to Dr. Sender is like listening to a kaleidoscope if a kaleidoscope has a voice. So as you know, a kaleidoscope is an optical instrument with bits of color materials and mirrors that turns beautiful images as you turn. So listening to him is almost like different ideas all tumbling all together um, bouncing off each other and creating a fascinating new way of looking at something. And as a serial entrepreneur, Dr. Sander thinks like an economist, but in his heart, he really is a teacher. And so there are many valuable lessons to learn from speaking with him. What fascinates me most is his ability to spot and respond to trends, big trends, creating, for example, the first interest rate contract in the 70s, the carbon trading climate exchange, and now creating a Maribor to replace the LIBOR. In this fast-paced instant gratification world that we live in, I'm so struck by his wisdom, ability, and foresight to see that a business takes at least 10 years in the making to gain traction, that you've got to find first the thought leaders and fast movers, and that you need patience to educate everyone who has any skin in the game at all. So enjoy. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to Learning with Lim podcast. Today we have Dr. Richard Sanders here, and uh, we're very honored that you can spend some time here with us and to learn more about you and what you do. Well, Ed, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Thanks for your support of this new inventive activity for replacement of LIBOR, and Mm -hmm. I'm uh, delighted and honored to work with you and Phillips. Yeah, thank you. So where we are right now is that, uh, uh, Dr. Sanders, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the Ameribor Futures, how you, why you thought of doing this, how long it took you, and where it is now, and what you wish that would happen. <laughs> well, that's, that's a big menu, yeah, Annette, big, but, big I'm, but yes. I'm, I'm delighted to answer it. I'm a serial inventor. Mm-hmm. And our last uh, exchange was a market-based solution to acid rain and global warming. Uh And we sold that exchange in 2010 to ICE. And we reformulated the incubator, EFP, to explore new markets. And we were on the track to develop water markets. Uh And I picked up the Financial Times in Uh 2011, Okay. and there was a small article that the Royal Bank of Scotland fired four people for manipulating LIBOR. So I called the team in and said, let's push water on the back platform, because I think there are going to be three or four things that would happen. Number one, LIBOR would lose its preeminence, that if there were four manipulating, then it could be 40 or 400. So that was premise one. Uh Premise two, zero interest rates were not sustainable. They were the response to a catastrophic occurrence in 07, 08. Yes. And zero interest rates as a student of economics weren't sustainable. Number three, very peculiar and very, very odd that America didn't have a benchmark. London had LIBOR, Europe had Eurobor, Hong Kong had HIBOR. And so we thought 
it would be appropriate to set up a regulated, transparent, interbank and financial institution lending platform yes. for overnight unsecured funding. This was a big challenge. We called up the lawyers, we uh -huh. submitted a patent, and we trademarked Ameribor, the American interbank offering rate. I got on a plane. Uh -huh. I used to go to London, yeah. Paris, yeah. Singapore, Shanghai, and now I found myself in Tupelo, Mississippi, Bentonville, <laughs> Arkansas. I can tell your audience where the best place to have pulled pork in America is. Oh, tell me that it's, one. It's, it's, uh, it's the gas station in Kansas City. Uh, <laughs> and it's the best pulled pork. Best pulled pork, <laughs> barbecue, uh, briskets, ribs, the whole nine yards. And I went to 125 cities in two years. Everybody pushed back and said, this is a silly concept. One, the, nobody lends to each other anymore. We okay. borrow from the federal government. We yeah. lend to the federal government. Yeah. And there's no need for it. And second of all, LIBOR will never be replaced. Uh -huh. And while it's interesting and you've had some small success in the past, perhaps you ought to try something else. I'm more persistent than I am smart. So I lowered my head, cracked into the wall again and kept on doing it. We got a little traction in 2014 when the Fed yeah. began to search around for an alternative rate to LIBOR. And people started saying, well, maybe this is not so crazy and maybe interest rates won't be zero. And so we got a little more traction. And by 2015, the attitudes had changed dramatically from 2011. So we had been at it for four years. We figured it was a 10-year venture. Wow. We uh, basically approached CBO and said, you have equity products and you're inventors, but you don't have any interest rate products. And uh -huh. if you want to be on a par with CME and yeah. ICE, you're going to have to round out your portfolio of products. Right. We cut a deal with them. Part of the way we invent is always to keep in mind it's important to educate the regulators before you do anything. So we went to Washington, briefed the Fed, the OCC, the FDIC, the yeah. SEC, the CFTC, yeah. every alphabet combination that you can imagine. And we launched uh, the market on December 11th, 2015. Uh -huh. We have to, and the audience should remember at that time, the market was still pretty frozen. Yep. Interest rates just when we launched came off zero. Yeah. No banks really lent to each other. And we ended up that month for the next couple of weeks doing 13 million a day. So we did about 65 million a week and we had four banks, the biggest bank in Wisconsin, biggest yeah. in Indiana. 
one of the biggest local Chicago banks and the biggest uh, independent bank in Texas. Just a few questions of your story because it's so amazing. So one is why wasn't there a U.S. LIBOR system in the first place? Like why why wasn't there? And it was so great that you spot that out. I feel like you're almost like a almost like Abraham Lincoln, well, <laughs> like changing like changing and uniting the different. <clears throat> disparate things going on, right? Well, it, to some so, extent, it, it is building a consensus. Yeah. And LIBOR is an accident, okay? It, it was never meant to be... Oh, I didn't know that. ...a benchmark. So it got started when six banks made a loan in the 60s to the Shah of Iran. The banks were concerned about making a fixed-rate loan because okay. they thought interest rates would go up. Okay. So they decided to lend Iran money, but on a floating rate basis, okay. not a fixed rate okay. basis. They had the dilemma in how to reset the rate as interest rates go. Yeah. So they agreed among the six banks that okay. they would call each other and find out what the consensus was. Okay, okay. And from that, it grew into a $200 trillion market. So right. it was an accident. It wasn't meant to be a benchmark. And it's incredible to me that you have this prevalence of the rate. Yeah, that's so, something by accident, so, right? Yeah, by accident. So I, I said to my team, you know, this is an accident. Nobody meant it to be ubiquitous. Nobody, right. nobody thought a bank in Mississippi would let the interest rates be determined by a poll of 18 banks. And that flies in the face everything we know about markets in Chicago. It's supposed to be yeah. many players, regulated, regulated, and, yeah. transparent, right. you know, and and have organized rules and make sure that the rate reflected real market conditions. And so to me it was fairly obvious that yeah. that it would have to be replaced at some point and that there would be a family of benchmarks so if we look at your business your business being the capital markets right. i've been doing this for 40 plus years i've yeah. never seen any asset class commodity equity or fixed income that had a single benchmark in crude you've got markets right. in texas right. brent crude abu dhabi singapore shanghai all of them yeah. differently there's more stock indexes than there are stocks right 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 <laughs> and right. more fixed income so how could it be one size fit all and now we have a secured overnight funding rate, which is the Fed's rate. Yeah. We have Sonia in England. We have Tona in Tokyo. Yeah. And I think we're going to have, similar to other asset class, a family of interest rate benchmarks. Our focus is the 5,000 American banks, not yeah. multinational, 
Yes. They cumulatively have nine trillion in assets. We went from four banks. Yeah. And sixty-five million in trading the first week. To last week, we traded thirteen billion, including a record three billion in a given day. Very good.、Yeah. We have a hundred and thirty-three banks and a thousand community banks、yeah. through the correspondence. So、uh-huh. we are twenty percent of America's banks. Today and our focus in Chicago, we have Northern Trust, Wind、yeah. Trust, CIBC, all of the major MB Financial, which is now Fifth Third. We have major regional banks, and we also have because our our tone is to be really representative of America. This is what we. Yeah, this is to, America. This is America. Not only that. The FDIC lists minority-owned banks, so we have representations in all categories and gender diversity. Yeah. So we have an African American bank, a Latino bank, yeah, Puerto Rican banks, Chinese American banks, Korean banks. Why is that important? And and American tribal banks. <laughs> So it's very important because our logo is commercial logic with social value, and we meant to be inclusive. And we have a number of of women CEOs.、Yeah. We think it's important. Yeah. And if we're going to be America's interest rates, we should include everyone. Everyone. It's、right. a big rainbow tent, <laughs> and our feeling is. This is so important. Benchmarks drive credit cards, mortgages, yeah, yeah. loans to small businesses, and if you're going to call yourself the American Financial Exchange,、yeah. you should be represented. You should be America. You should be America. Okay, so tell me about like, was there a time when you were trying to push this going? You know, that you felt like giving up because most people are like, oh no, you're crazy. Well, and, or you just don't give up. I mean, I don't quit. You know, I ever, ever, and every project I've worked on has taken ten to fifteen years. Financial futures,、right. climate catastrophe derivatives, and Ameribor. So we started in eleven. We expected that it would reach its first. Level of young adulthood in 2021. Okay, and we don't get too excited when things are going very well, and we don't get uncomfortable when they're not going well. One has to recognize that innovations. Yeah, and it doesn't matter if they're financial. Yeah, or you know, financial futures took a decade. Mortgage backers took a decade. It took us, call it thirty years, twenty、uh, years to get from Stephen Jobs'、uh, prototype、mm-hmm. to the web,、mm-hmm. social media, another decade.、Yep. The iPhone is only coming to its end now. So if we look at industrial inventive activity、mm-hmm. or financial inventive activity, it's a ten or twenty year process. It costs thirty to fifty million to launch a market,、mm-hmm. and in a decade at least, 
And if you're going to start the journey, mm -hmm. one has to understand that you have to educate accountants, you have to educate lawyers, you have to make go do speaking engagements mm -hmm. at universities to educate the academics, you have to educate the press, you have to speak to barons, the yeah. Wall Street Journal, all of the major, you have to do broadcast journalism, yeah. CNBC, you know, yeah. Maria yeah. Bartoloma, yeah. Rick Santelli. Yeah. It's important that you recognize that there's a hundred plus details and constituents yeah. that have to be educated. I get calls all the time, Lynette, from people who say, I have an idea, I think you know, I want to start a market. Yeah. In, in, tell me how. Tell me how. And I say, well, you just did the first 1%. You got 10 years and $40 million. I'll tell you how to do the rest. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you learn that from, that longevity of that business? Because most people are looking at quarter. They're expecting instant results. They're... Well, I, number one, I didn't do my dissertation in finance. My okay. PhD dissertation was the economics of inventive activity. Oh, and, wow. And That's I, so interesting. And so I came to finance after trading stocks and commodities when I was a professor at Berkeley in the 60s. Okay. And and so I understood the inventive process. And, and we have to understand that, that invention really is two stages. Okay. The idea itself, which is called the invention. Okay. Sometimes patentable, sometimes not. Okay. And then the commercialization okay. is called innovation. So it's invention, innovation. And then it's replication or imitation. Okay. And if you look at power steering, the personal computer versus typewriters. Electric cars. Electric cars. Yeah. One has to recognize that it is a generational question. And it was very important for me to intellectually understand that. So I didn't have false expectations for either myself, my colleagues, my investors, my users, yeah. that they understood that we were doing things transformational. We weren't doing incremental change. Yes. And if you're going to do transformational change, it's a 10, 20 year process. Okay. But take me back to like, like you said, when the first start, when you have to go to all these different places with the good barbecue, how do you convince those people, you know, these small banks, these very regional local banks, right, that this was a very important step for America to go towards, right? How, how do you even start that conversation? Well, the, the conversation draws on a, on a couple of, of reasons. Number one... You have to identify thought leaders. Okay. At my stage, and even when I was working on financial futures as a professor at Berkeley in mm -hmm. the 60s. That's fun time, 60s. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it wasn't the, the real lead story, wasn't free love, 
women's rights, minority rights, yeah. you know, anti-war. Right. There was a whole revolution going on. And okay. You have to spot the structural change going on if you're going to look at a big idea. Okay. And, and it doesn't matter whether it was the Dutch East India trading in 1605, wheat trading in 1848, yeah. you know, mortgage-backed securities, financial futures. You have to understand that there's a fundamental change that's going to take place. In our case, it was the elimination of a benchmark and a transition with thousands and and trillions and hundreds of trillions of dollars that have to be changed. So yeah. you have to be there. You have to have a solid, well-thought-out argument, and then you have to identify thought leaders and yeah. first movers. Okay, who okay? are willing to take the chance. Who are willing to listen. Okay, first step. First step is I'm a teacher, and it helps... Being a teacher, because you have to crisply lay out the case. Okay. You have to take very complex ideas and make them simple. Yes. The job is not to make simple ideas complex. It's to make complex ideas okay. readily understood. Okay. In the case of Amerimbor, it, it helps that I've had 40 years of experience and, and some, a few small successes, so mm -hmm. people listened. It became my issue to identify first movers and fast mm -hmm. followers. Okay. As opposed to slow followers, or I'd rather die than change. <laughs> and those people are very important to be weeded out because time is extraordinarily valuable and yes. you, you can't waste time waste time trying to convince people you know that would not be first movers or fast followers. Okay. That's how you do it. Okay. And then once you get, you know, a critical mass you then can build on the support of a few industry leaders. Okay. And that's what we're doing now. So the very same people that were there at the outset as founding members are now yeah. doing Ameribor Link loans. The very first users and were founders are using futures. Right. And so the next question I have is, how do you bring in, you were mentioning before that uh, it was important to bring in the regulators. Right. When, when does that process start? A lot of people are afraid of regulators because they fine, different <laughs> fines, but how do you then I, I'm a big friend of regulation. Uh, okay. Uh, you may or may not know when we were working on financial futures. Yeah. We had tried with Ginny Mays, and there was great regulatory uncertainty. And was it a security? Was it a commodity? Was it exempt from SEC regulation? Yeah. Not. A very long story that I'll share with you at some other time, but I was the chief economist at the Board of Trade. And, okay. and we advocated 
the legislation which led to the creation of the CFTC. And I work with the House and Senate defining what a commodity was in order to facilitate financial futures and create the agency that would regulate financial futures. And so I did a lot of work with the House, a lot of work with the Senate. Yeah. And so in that case, once that was done, we then had to educate the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. And the first mm-hmm. thing for approval was Jenny Mace, which was not even a commodity. Right. So I had to go through, educate interest rates. As a matter of fact, the standard form for approval of a new futures contract had a particular category, and you'll get, I think, a little bit of a laugh out of it, which was, is there enough storage space in Chicago for bonds? (laughs) That was the issue. That was the issue for Ginny May. So I had to educate an entire group of people from what was an agricultural agency to understand what a financial instrument was. So I never was fearful because I it was a question, you not only had to take the seed, you had to plant it, you had to water it, you had to watch it yeah. grow, you had to harvest it, you then took the vegetables, you had to cook it, after you cooked it, you had to put it on a plate. After you put it on a plate, you have to take a fork, put it in the hand of the people that eat it, take the, help them lift the fork to their mouth, yeah. and then chew it. So, <laughs> oh, a lot of steps. So a lot of steps. So I was very accustomed to working with legislators. The first was an act. Then it was the CFTC, and I found that as long as I was transparent with them yeah. and told them that I supported them, them, yeah. I was treated kindly. So I've, and you may note that just last week, Chris Giancarlo, the head of the yeah. CFTC, joined our board. Right. And so we feel, and Carol Brookins, who is the executive director of the World Bank under George W. Bush, we find it very easy and relaxing to deal with governments and regulators and found that with their understanding comes intelligent regulation. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And if you want to still, if America still wants to have a place in the financial markets for the world, it needs, everything needs to work together. Yes, and, right. and you know, we are the envy of the world. Right. You know, with regard to our capital markets. And as yes. an economist, you know, maybe 20, 25% of the economy is in the financial sector and 80% in the real sector. But if you go to leaders in China and India, they fully understand that they're going to need mature capital markets Correct. to make their economies grow. Yes. yes. And Singapore is a perfect example. It gets it completely, you know, has, yes. has built institutional capability. It's and, a and pragmatic economy. It's very pragmatic. <laughs> yes. 
And yes. pragmatism in capital markets is critical, as is transparency. And so, you know, people say, well, why are you doing this? And, and you know, how about the futures market? And, you know, we did the record 350 contracts last week. And they said, well, how do you feel about it? And we said, our expectations were not big. This is, these markets don't happen like spontaneous combustion. Yes. They have to be fed. Yes. They yes. have to be nursed. They have to go through an entire cycle. So, you know, we've been fortunate to identify the major changes, whether it was financial futures, climate change, a decade before it happened. Yes. And sometimes two decades and have the patience. Yes, exactly the patience. And people normally say to me, you're too early. And my response, Lynette, is in 40 years, the only way to be on time is to be early. That's brilliant. That's actually very brilliant. One question I have, what is, what? because I, I like books, what is, maybe you can name your favorite book or two books that really change you or influence your thinking? It could be academic, it could be anything. Well, my mentor was um, a man by the name of Ronald Coase. Yes. Who wrote two articles and was overlooked by the economics profession. He ultimately won a Nobel no. Prize. Yeah. And I was very influenced by his work as a graduate student. He wrote... Okay. An article on the theory of the firm, why do companies exist? And he ultimately proved it's it's because of transaction costs, build or buy. And and that article has even been used in the last year to explain the internet and whatnot. And his notion of transactions costs and property rights moved me. And then he wrote a second article on the theory of social costs, which got me to thinking about environmental markets, okay. you know, things of that nation, auctioning of radio waves and yeah. and things like that, that property rights. And I believe my work yes. has been influenced by the notion of unambiguous property rights and transaction costs. And those are necessary to invent any new market. I would love to get that copy and read it. That sounds amazing. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Then let's switch a little bit gear. So, because I went to visit your house, why art? Why is art your your outlet? Um, well, we we have two sides of the brain. Okay, you know, one's analytical. Yes, and the other one is non-essentially driven. Right. So, so are you driven by the value when you buy? Like, do you think in your mind, like, okay, this art is going to worth millions, so I'm going to buy it right now as an economist thinking? Or do you simply go, because I like it? I buy it because I like it. And, And my wife is an artist. She got me interested in photography. I am a collector's mentality. I'm a pack rat. If I, you know, I, I, if I have two, I want five. If I have five, I want ten. Okay. Photography, to me, was 
a field that I could intellectually grasp. It began in 1839 with the French Daguerre, who came up with Daguerreotype, and Fox Talbot that invented salt prints. It had a defined industry, it had an English background, it had European background, it had American, and at the time I collected in the 1970s, I could grasp the technological changes that occurred from salt prints to yeah. silver prints to platinum prints. Okay. I could grasp the entire field. And, and I found that I couldn't do it in painting. You can't do it in sculpture. It's just too big. And I, and I looked at it and, and I secondly did it because it was very affordable. At the time that I started collecting, there were only three museums that had photography departments in the world. Okay. And it was the Art Institute, the Modern, and the Met. Okay. There was nothing that in California. The Getty didn't exist. There was no San Francisco Modern. There wasn't okay. a Fine Arts in Houston. There wasn't Atlanta. There wasn't a photography museum in England. There wasn't a yeah. photography museum. And I said... I could really assemble an entire history of photography from its birth to new media and virtual reality. And then I didn't know it would be virtual reality. Yeah. And so um, I found it exciting. And every place I went, I bought photographs. So after I started traveling and I helped start life in London. I started buying 19th century English photography. Then I went to France and worked on the Matif and other and I started yeah. buying 19th century French and 20th century in Paris between the wars. Then I started lecturing in Germany yeah. and in, in Hungary and Vienna so I bought Bauhaus photography, and I bought Russian avant-garde, and I bought Czech modern and Hungarian modern, and then I set up an exchange in China, so I started buying Chinese, uh, Chinese contemporary photography. Then I went to Brazil because of the environmental work and started collecting work on rainforests and things of that nature. So everywhere I went, if I could understand the art... I also benefited in understanding the culture. And the context, right? And the, the context. And, and you've seen the collection, and the collection is not like single pieces of art. It is a narrative. Yes, I could it, tell. It tells a story. Yes. And to me, the fun of it is, intellectually, is to understand the image whether it's the American West in the 1880s of Paris and the wars, to understand the context and the time and place it was taken and what were the artist's thoughts. Okay, okay. I really appreciate being with you, and I, I, I hope that this gives you some insights into what you and your audience was interested in. Yeah, I think there's so many more questions I would like to ask you, so I, I would definitely... Um... Yeah, we'll do, it and we'll do more another time. Yes, yes, for sure. So thank you for your time again. My pleasure. Yeah, thank thanks. you.